We have a well-publicised housing affordability crisis in this country, now extending beyond the home ownership hurdle into the rental arena. And for years we've been hearing that supply is the answer. However, we know that it's really not that simple. Land in our established urban areas is finite, and even if all the available land was suddenly rezoned and all the local and state government red tape was cut, we'll still face supply constraints and developers will still choose their most advantageous times to build and release stock. And then we add in population growth, we're on the cusp of an increased intake in skilled migrants, but where will they live? If we hope to decentralise populations from our main cities, or even within a sprawling city like Sydney or Melbourne, there's a chicken and egg dilemma of jobs versus accommodation. How can policymakers anticipate where future housing will be needed? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant in the room.com.au today we're joined by professor chris leishman a housing economist and one of Australia's leading housing researchers he's also a non-executive director of housing choices australia a not-for-profit community housing provider active in South Australia, West Australia, uh, Victoria, New South Wales and Tassie. Now, Chris is best known for his work on modelling housing supply and housing need in Australia and back in the UK. He works extensively with government at national, state and local levels and is the author of many recent research reports that have studied the impact of COVID-19 on the housing system and the economy as well as a major study about to be published on links between population change, migration and economic productivity. So we think he's well equipped to help us untangle the fact from the fiction surrounding this increasingly serious issue. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chris. We'd love your insights into this supply solution, respecting, of course, that the affordability crisis isn't just about ownership. Yeah, no, thanks very much, guys, for the invitation to join. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to add some, some thoughts and insights to this huge and complex problem. I mean, that's where I'm going to start, Chris. I always like a difficult <laughs> question to kick it off. But I mean, the rental crisis, I mean, it seems quite prolific at the moment, you know, out there. I mean, why do you think we've got this growing rental affordability crisis, not just in our cities, but in our, our regions as well? Why do you think it's it's got so bad? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a housing economist, so I do a lot of walking data and so on. But, you know, you can tell a lot about what's going on just by looking around your local suburb, you know, look at the trends. And you know, when the, the pandemic broke out, um, you know, one of the first things I noticed is that, um, you know, the sudden, um, you know, eviction of tenants. And then a few weeks later or six weeks later, the appearance of shipping containers in some of the, 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 the nicer suburbs in Adelaide. I uh, imagine the same thing kind of happened in Melbourne, Sydney and elsewhere. So, you know. No. <laughs> Could you enlighten us on that? Look, I mean, I think the point I'm making is that uh, a huge number of Australians working overseas came home during the pandemic. Oh, but, sorry. You've, you're being a bit poetic in the way you're describing it. I didn't really understand. Uh, no, apologies. Sorry, so, you know, and so what did they do? Um, a lot of them had owned houses. They were tenanted while they were working overseas in New York, London, Dubai, wherever they were. Um mm-hmm. 
of course, it's pretty tricky getting home to Australia during the pandemic in the early six months anyway, but it, they did make it. You know, something like half a million Australians came home um, and something like 450,000 temporary residents were, you know, were sort of edged into leaving. Um, so we saw this really interesting thing happening in, in the housing market where the more salubrious, the more expensive um, suburbs were actually doing pretty well during the pandemic. Um, you know, because people working overseas quite often have quite good, quite well-paid jobs. They were moving back into their homes. Um, and then we're seeing students and temporary residents, backpackers all leaving in huge volumes and then leaving rental markets, city centre rental markets with huge vacancy rates. So that was that's what was happening in the early days of, of, of the pandemic. Um, and, um, you know, essentially there's a mismatch between what was available and what people were, were demanding moving into. And then, of course, the stimulus kicked in. So we had unprecedented stimulus, uh, sort of incredibly low interest rates. Um, we, you know, we had JobKeeper, HomeBuilder, and lots of other states and territories uh, slapped more subsidies on top of that as well. Um, so it created this perfect storm of um, economic stimulus um, and, you know, this sort of excessive housing market reaction. Um, so it's cheap money, it's easy, easy to get. Uh, the demand side was being subsidised as well. People began dreaming about walking from home more, more often, uh, about leaving uh, the horrors of lockdown, leaving capital cities and moving into regional towns and cities. And so we saw the beginning of a boom happening pretty quickly. Uh, and, you know, there's a stronger recovery um, than we expected and it's faster than, than anyone expected. Um, and I suppose the other thing that's important is it doesn't actually take too many people to move from a huge city like Sydney or Melbourne into regional towns for there to be a really significant and noticeable effect on demand and therefore prices and rents there. Mm. How much work have you done on, on <laughs> how sustainable that is? Because I, I have a suspicion there's going to be a U-turn to some degree um, than when things settle down. Will people, you know, continue to have the hybrid working or working from home to, to the degree that they can actually stay living in regional towns? And, and I'm wondering, have you done any work on the change of demographic mix on those towns as well? Because I guess the average age must have been reducing quite some areas, you know, where there's been a rule like a, a retiree type migration previously. Um, and I know this is not what we talked about talking about actually originally. So I'm, I'm just curious, you got any of your stuff off the top of your head? Uh, no, this isn't what we're supposed to be talking about, but it's, it seems like an interesting thing <laughs> to talk about, doesn't it? So that's fine. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. It's a nice conversation. <laughs> Look, I mean, we're actually doing some work on this at the moment, but the truth is, it's at a, it's at an early stage. We don't really, we haven't really unravelled um, all of those trends. But you know, one of the, the pieces of work we did actually was a scan of all of the media work that's been done over the last two years, and there's been like a huge mm. number of newspaper articles published about people flocking to regions. Um, yeah. It's for lifestyle reasons like retirement or, and you know better work-life balance, or it might be about um, trying something new. You know, it might be about escaping lockdowns. Um, a lot of it's about chasing more affordable housing um, circumstances. Yeah. But what's changing really quickly and really very difficult to get handle on is um, what what the future of working from home is actually going to look like. Uh, and in every company and yeah. every sector, there's a different take on it. Um, some yeah. people hate it, you know, and uh, and uh, they're trying to encourage their employ employees back into the office. Uh, and others, 
um, it's, it's been great, it's been a boon for them. Um, so I think it's going to take years before we can actually see how it settles down. But my feeling is that cities are pretty important for the economy. And that we know that the, the sort of center point of uh, innovation and entrepreneurship and business startup. We know that younger people like cities, you know, so like millennials, for example, they're, they're less likely to take driving lessons, they're less likely to drive cars, they're more likely to use public transport, um, they like using technology, they like everything to be at the, uh, I know it is a gross generalization, but these are the sorts of things that come yeah. across, that they like leisure um, and social interactions, and these things are available in abundance in city centers. So the likelihood is we're going to go back to some sense of, you know, cities going to remain very, very important to our economy and our lifestyle, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. That's conversations. I think you, you're right. It's going to take years for this to really sort of play out across each individual sort of different type of occupation, I guess. We're getting so many different reports from clients. You know, they thought they had to go to the city two days and then they've been mandated three days. And actually, you know what, it's four days. And um, you know, we've had clients who have gone to regions and have come back to the city. We've got clients who have got work from anywhere in the world, same salary. Mm -hmm. I had one this morning. Um, he's at a big tech company. You can go anywhere, zero, completely remote. Um, and so I feel like people are just starting to get a real sense of what their employer is going to offer because their employer is not sure what their competitors are offering, right? Yeah. And everyone doesn't want to, you know, offer too much flexibility when they can get people... And it's all about the culture, isn't it? And, you, you know, you need to have some type of culture in the business. So I feel like that's going to really impact how the housing market sort of plays out is how uh, much remote work and work from home sort of gets embedded into society. It's, it's not going to happen overnight. This is going to continue to play out over many years. Is that sort of your, your take? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, the other thing that's important is we're, we've got these records, uh, really tight labour market conditions, you know, but but it's mm. not... It's not um, it's, it's not great for everybody. It depends what occupation you're in. If you're in accounting and finance and banking, um, I mean, maybe the latter isn't so good now. But if we look at what the stock markets have been doing over the last few months. But in those, um, you know, uh, big corporate jobs, uh, we're hearing things in interviews that uh, it's really an employee's market. Their employees are able to dictate the salaries, the salary increases, and also to a certain extent, yeah. they're working from home, the flexible working arrangements. Um, a big unknown, of course, is what it does to productivity. Some people were very effective at working from home during the pandemic, others less so. Um, others, you know, improved their gardens and hobbies and things like that. Um, and, you know, we did a study actually which showed that uh, people who were working from home before the pandemic had a, had a quite a good understanding of what they'd lost when they stopped having face-to-face -face interactions. Um, but it was the people actually who had no experience working from home before COVID-19 hit, um, thought they were just as productive as they were beforehand. Um, they didn't really have sight of what they'd lost to a certain extent. So it's going to play out slowly, you know, over years in different economic sectors. And it all depends on what the economy does um, and what that impacts on labour market conditions as well. Because I think some employers want to go back to the old days as quickly as they can, right? Yeah. <laughs> Given that that there is still so much uncertainty or how this all comes out in the wash is going to take some time to really to make itself known or to settle into a pattern. And then we might have some other pandemic or something else happen that actually throws it all up in the air again. Yeah. 
How do, how do you go about modelling housing need? Because obviously in the past maybe there was a few more stable factors. Here. Might, <laughs> your yeah. inputs might be a little bit more stable. I mean, I guess how, how has the modelling process changed even or has it has it changed? Like, modelling housing needs very difficult actually because it's essentially it's a combination of demographic analysis. So trying to figure out, you know, who's yeah. – how many people are going to come through the system and uh, and then try and form a household and then with economic factors too uh, and that question about yeah. trying to form a household is uh, is uh, is an interesting and difficult one particularly in australia um where there's a culture of living at home for a bit longer um as an adult child you know so i'm from the uk originally um i'm from scotland yeah, but the tradition there is you're 17, that's it, you're out, um, and <laughs> you're on your own. <laughs> you know, better sink or swim, right? So, but you know, people off, I know I've got lots of friends here who've got adult kids in their mid to late 20s, still at home, houses are bigger, there's more bathrooms, there's more space. It's not quite as uh, as easy a question to answer. So, so that question about um, when people have got stable relationship and have saved up enough money, that's when it triggers that decision to form a new household. Um, and, and it's inherently more difficult in Australia because of those cultural factors. Um, and the economy matters as well. I mean, so whether people have got good jobs and the saving uh, then accelerates yeah. or slows down that, that process. Because in a way, I guess there's the whole affordability thing about how hard it is to get into the housing market feeds into that as well, doesn't it? If you're going to, if it's expensive or if you can't find a place to rent and the rents are expensive or you can't, you know, you haven't got 12 years to save up a deposit, um, you're more inclined to live with your parents. And I think also morality. I think about when I was growing up, well, my parents are Pentecostal Christians. There's no reason, there's no way on earth I was going to get any hanky-panky going on in my bedroom, in my parents' house. Whereas my daughter, when it's time for her, you know, you can just tell that <laughs> society has changed as well in terms of the freedoms that, that young adults have within their, under their parents' roofs. So back to that sort of um, the affordability thing, there was a, a whole inquiry conducted by the previous government in the, resulting in the Flinsky report. I know that you actually submitted evidence to that, that inquiry, but it wasn't taken up. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, look, I mean, there's been, that wasn't the first government inquiry that's been into Australia's yeah. housing affordability um, crisis, and it won't be the last, let's, let's face it. Mm. Um, I think what marked that one out is a little bit different to me is that um, it's, it was announced, uh, you know, the solution was announced with the problem. So, you know, it, uh, the inquiry was going to find that housing supply was the main problem. And it did. Yeah. Uh, so in a sense, that wasn't all that surprising. Um, <laughs> I suppose I was a bit disappointed that some of the evidence from other countries wasn't examined. Um, so, yeah. you know, for example, the UK um, did a load of work on this in, in the early 2000s. Um, so the government was getting worried about uh, housing affordability then um, and, started, and it launched a major government inquiry. The, the government inquiry um, in 2003 concluded that planning was slowing down the rate of land development and then that was knocking on to affordability. Okay, so it's a pretty familiar argument. Um, yeah. But what they did, actually, they significantly reformed the planning system um, to boost the, the supply of land. Um, and what happened next is very interesting, actually, because in 2003, 4, 5, 6, actually not much happened in terms of uh, increased 
uh, activity in the house building industry. And the government began to wonder why. Um, and uh, so I was involved in those sort of those small studies that looked at uh, the behavior of developers and how to make decisions. Um, and we started um, realizing then actually that, you know, developers have got very small profit margins. Um, you know, they don't make a fortune and it's quite difficult to make the economics of a site stand up. And we kind of realized yeah. that um, developer will wait until there's no local competition before they develop a site. And there's a certain limitation to how quickly the market can absorb a newly built housing. I reckon yeah. we see similar stuff going on in Australia. So if you think about the way um, apartment developers work, they don't want to start work yeah. until they've signed up 60 or 80% um, of sales off plan, right? So, um, and they need to collect mm -hmm. those deposits. Only then will the bank lend them the money and they're very, very timid. You know, unlike in the home loan sector where banks are willing to lend people, you know, eye-washing sums of money, they're, they're very cautious when yeah. it comes to lending to, to developers. Um, yeah. And so the idea that if you, um, you know, if you reform planning and try to speed up land supply, it will magically make prices drop it is, is a nonsense, really. And we know this from looking at the international evidence. Uh, you know, I don't know, frankly, why would developers do it? Why would they build so much that prices suddenly start falling for them? They wouldn't stay in business yeah. operating that way. We interviewed uh, Cameron Murray, economist, um, a couple of months back, and he was saying a similar thing. And and it's just you're just ignoring the economic or the just pragmatic realities of, you know, a, a, an open market basically, aren't you? If you're trying to think that it's as simple as just releasing land or, or, or loosening uh, controls. But the problem is that successive governments have kept coming out saying, well, supply is the answer, supply is the answer, and sort of doing lots of things and, and making lots of stimulus available and grants, home loan grants for first home buyers, incentivising them to buy brand new property, et cetera, et cetera, to sort of continue with this myth. So so what is the, what is the real story then? I mean, what is, you know, if supply, of course, supply is the answer, but that's like this utopian, it's a slightly unrealistic sort of... Um, illogical or it's logical but illogical um conclusion what what's the real answer i think there's a few things that are important here right so when, when people say housing supply what they really mean is new build housing supply so newly mm. constructed dwellings but if you think about the way yeah. the market actually works something like 80 or 90 percent of all housing supply is actually coming from the established stock right and mm. people forget this so um and that's important because we have a housing system in which when people do enter home ownership, uh, they either want to stay in a the house they've got or trade up. Um, people very rarely trade down in the housing market, downsize, it's very rare. So, um, so there's no sorting going on. Once you're in, you want to stay there or go, get bigger. Uh, so there's no one yeah. supplying smaller units to, to the market. Uh, so even if, po if, if population didn't grow at all, you'd still have um, a big problem with too many people chasing too few opportunities. Yeah. You know, but then, um, and don't quote me in these figures, but um, I think that the average or the median house in the UK sort of transacts once every seven or eight years. Um, but in Australia, yeah. it's it's getting closer to 20. Um, why is that? Yeah. I thought it was six. I don't, think so. I don't know, where did I get oh, that figure it might from? Be, maybe, in the, maybe in the apartment <laughs> sector. Um, yeah. I think... 
I think you think you're right. In the housing sector, we're living in our houses longer and longer for lots of reasons. Yeah. Um, like you say, you know, it's uh, to upgrade is really expensive to take on that bigger debt. Um, you know, there's not any options. We'll renovate, stamp duty, selling costs, um, etc. Yeah, well, um, I think that's it. And, I think you've hit the nail on the head about the tax settings there because, um, you know, mm -hmm. when you've got enormous transaction costs, um, like stamp duty is just enormous in Australia and it's just eye-watering, right? Yeah. So if, you, if you're paying that huge sum of money to the government, you're going to stay in the house longer. You're going to transact less, less frequently. Yeah. Uh, and so mm. the, the mismatch between what people are living in and what they actually want or need is going to be it's going to be larger by definition because mm. they're in it for longer. Um, and you, you know, so uh, again, comparing UK and Australia, it, it, Australia has about double the amount of new built housing supply uh, compared to the UK. You know, it's, it's double. It's actually the second highest uh, country in the OECD block in terms of new built housing supply. Well, what's different yeah. about it, though, of course, is it, it historically at least had a huge rate of net overseas migration. So, so you know, it kind of need, yeah. Australia needs that extra new build supply to, to mop up um, those extra pressures. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing, I mean, it's just when your house is the one asset you've got um, and it's growing for you and it's growing tax-free, you know, you, you even if you don't need the big house, you just keep it because you know you've got a good asset growing tax-free and that's another issue, right? I mean... If you were paying tax on those gains or, you know, vacancy tax, you know, if you weren't using all your bedrooms or et cetera. So I know you've done some work around the vacancy tax. What's your thoughts on, you know, that? And is that something practical that we could implement? Look, I, think, I haven't really done a lot of work on this, but I was around in the UK still when the bedroom tax was introduced. Um, but, mm. um, I mean, it was actually positioned as um, the removal of, the subsidy on having vacant rooms, um, but it became dubbed the bedroom tax. Uh, of course it would be. Look, I think though that these things are they're politically really toxic. Um, you know, I mean, pe yeah. pe once mm. people have bought a house and it's their asset, they want to be left alone. And uh, for that reason, there isn't much regulation actually in the established um, part of the market. So. So if any government, whether it's Australian or otherwise, wants to improve energy efficiency, for example, or the sustainability of, of dwellings, the way that they're built, or, or density or layout, they always target the new build sector because it's a sort of policy accessible part of the housing market. Now, once you own your house, you want to be left alone. You don't want, to, you know, you don't want any new interventions or regulation coming along. Um, you know, it's, it's your, your house. Um, but the point you make about assets is a really good one too, um, and I sometimes wonder you know, what is in store in the future, because um, we're sort of transitioning from a system in which current older people tend not to have much or any superannuation balances, but they do own yeah. um, housing assets, um, and quite often they're, they're income poor, right? So that, you know they own a house. Yeah. Older people own houses. Quite often they're dilapidated. They're not very energy efficient. Um, but it's theirs, yep. but they don't have much income. But we're transitioning into a different era now in which people have got quite substantial superannuation balances. And, you know, what will that do to people's desire to own property? Will it be as important? Um, again, going back to demography, there's some evidence, survey evidence, that millennials, for example, don't think it's as important as older generations thought, thought it was. Well, I mean, is if it, you've got a big super balance and you've got a house, um, your need to downsize is smaller, right? So if you go, well, 
I'm going to use all my super up and I'll downsize. So if anything, because of superannuation, you're going to keep people in housing for longer because they're going to get to retirement with another nest egg that they can live on. They don't need to downsize. And I mean, it, and something we're seeing in lending, which is is, is not going to help the housing market is, you know, uh, reverse home loans and equity release type of products. Even the government offers them now are going to start coming into to play for, you know, retirees. So yeah, you've got, you know, your house worth, you know, one, $2 million with very little debt on it. You haven't got any money in your super. You can't afford a mortgage, but we'll give you this reverse mortgage to live on, which means you stay in your house for another five years. And, you know, products like that, are, if anything, going to create more housing unaffordability, um, which I can see the government sort of, you know, doing that as well. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I haven't really done much work on on that kind of thing, like reverse mortgages, but there is some evidence that people find them sort of they don't like the idea of it you know they don't like the idea of, mm. of actually they've they've transferred away some control uh, and i actually think mm. that psychological thing is important in property i mean it's not just physically owning something which which exists but it's like you have complete control over it you have control over the house you're living in and control over the other properties that people own you know, because Australia has sort of become a place where you either don't own any property or you own a few, you know. Um. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. There's, there, it, investors, I think there's something like only about roughly 70% of investors own more than one investment property. So going to that emotion, because as you were talking about downsizing, I was actually thinking about, you know, what is it that keeps people in their in their properties when they're at that downsizing age, it isn't always a practical conversation or a practical thinking around how much is in their super balance or, or you know, uh, whether it's the right thing to do, whether they've got too many bedrooms, whether, you know, they could free up some some money. A lot of it is is just emotionally or just the, Emotion, the sheer yeah. spectre of having to go through a move. If you've been in a property for 20 or more years, you think, oh, my God, who wants to pack all that stuff up and go through the yeah. culling and downsize and get rid of stuff? And, like, it's actually emotionally, it's physically and emotionally exhausting um, if you haven't moved regularly. So I think that there's lots. And also we're talking about Australians basically being in properties for so long. They don't sort of do that that gradual upgrade you know, regularly, maybe in my area they do. I'm in the inner city of Sydney and, and people buy into very small properties. They are forced because they outgrow the properties that they buy into, in, into this market. But so if they're not, um, if they're getting into a, a property earlier that's sort of bigger than they need, then they have their family and it's the right size for a period of time and then the mo family moves out and it's bigger than they need again, you know, then by the time that property is ready to come back on the market, it's not really the sort of stock that a young family back at the beginning of that life cycle is really going to want to buy. You know what I mean? So there's, there's all this discussion around, oh, well, you've got to free up, you've got to incentivize the downsizers and retirees to sell up their family home so that the first yeah. home buyers get in the market. But it's not like they're necessarily going to buy that stock. So have you done sort of any work on, on that type of flow chart if you like not really but i think that oh, it's something i think about quite a bit um because of what i do for a living you know and you know one of the mm. things i found uh, fascinating about australian housing markets actually is is how um how temporary and dispensable the buildings actually are you know so, yes. so i mean i mean coming from europe um where mm. you just wouldn't demolish a house like pretty much ever you know, unless, yeah. unless it was a slum yeah. and it's falling down anyway, you just wouldn't de demolish a house. So they're mm. built to higher standards, um, they're more energy efficient, um, but they're more expensive. And once, once it's built, even getting a permission to demolish it is very difficult, right? So 
Whereas the, if you think about your typical suburban Australian house, you know, once it's 20 years old, 25 years old, it's, it's pretty much yeah. had it. And, uh, it. and it becomes a knockdown rebuild opportunity. Um, but then, of yeah. course, that can trigger other um, options. Um, so lots of suburbs that I drive through every day, you, you know, you can see, you know, um, low density, big houses getting pulled down, replaced by two or three townhouses. There's lots of mm. infill development going on. So in a sense, mm. it actually helps market. Um, it, it makes it more efficient. Um, but the point about yeah. your, uh, you know, your behavioral or psychological point is a really good one. Um, People get really invested in the house they're in, and that coupled with the high transaction um, uh, costs mean mm. that it makes sense to buy something that's bigger than you need, than you need, and then keep it for much longer um, to avoid the transaction costs. And then, of course, you, you know you get you build up memories and emotions in that house as well. Mm. And actually, some and yeah. a community, you yeah. know, you, a local. Yeah. You know where your hairdresser is, and the doctor is, and the chemist yeah. is, and the you know, and the dentist in the park, and you got friends down the park, and your dogs go down there and run together. And yeah, that stuff's really important. And you know, and some, and yeah. uh, and older um, home buyers that I've that I've interviewed in projects also quite often make an important point, which is, yes, their dwelling is very underoccupied for most of the year, but it actually plays an important role in the wider family. So, like yeah. adult children come yeah. home at Christmas time, and there's family gatherings and, yeah. and so on. So, yeah. okay, so it's only a few um, nights or a dozen nights a year, but it is actually being um, heavily utilised at points in the year. So they've got reasons for not wanting to downsize and move out. Yeah, I mean, I, I've uh, we don't do much work around that sort of retiree sort of transition, but um, you know, I do help out with a number of real estate agents, and they'll say, you know, can you just talk to this client around their finance? And finance is a really difficult part of the conversation because a lot of them they're not working or they're part working and banks won't give them mortgages and um you know it's just the logistics of having to potentially sell first and the stress of that and then getting a deposit bond and you know mm. then they're in the market and they've got you know they've got to go to auctions and the stress of that and then the selling of their property and prepare and the open homes and it all just becomes too much and the, the fear of actually getting a worst outcome is what drives them just to stay, right? Mm. And and then they go, well, it's actually a better asset anyway. You can see the growth on it. They could have downsized it. So I think there's there's just so much to this conversation. The government says, oh, well, they put more money into super or something like that, expecting that that's going to motivate them. But it's just all the other things that stop them mm. actually, you know, taking action. There's an interesting, back to something you talked about earlier, Chris, with, uh, around productivity, because there is a connection between housing unaffordability and economic productivity isn't there and and it's probably not talked about enough i know that um uh, michelle adair has mentioned it in some of our interviews with her can you explain how that works for us if you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at the elephant in the room .com.au. Sure. So I I think this is an interesting area. Um, the links between like the housing system and the economy in general. Um, yeah. The arguments are quite difficult to explain though. So that might um, that might explain <laughs> explain why it, it hasn't gained a lot of traction. 
But I think policymakers are beginning to recognise that this is an important area. It's, so we're getting we're getting more visibility now. Um, so um, I mean, effectively, the, the, we know that Australian productivity is declining, right? So the output per hour worked is falling. It has been for the last ten to fifteen years. Um, and so some of the projects I've been involved in or led over, over the last few years have looked at the idea, you know, maybe the housing system is actually part of the, of the cause of that declining productivity. Uh, and so mm. I think the easiest way to explain it is if you think about a, a, a much older established worker, um, in general, they have a higher salary because the productivity is higher. And so in productivity um, studies, wages and productivity is kind of seen as um, very highly correlated. Um, if you think about um, younger workers, so recent university graduates, for example, so they're, they're entering the workforce at much lower wage rates. Why? Because, because they're inexperienced, so the productivity is lower. Um, mm. But their productivity as, as individual workers is increasing quickly. You know, so they're learning very quickly uh, in, in the workplace. They're learning from peers and mentors and coaches. They're learning um, job-based learning. And so the salaries are going up very quickly. Um, so as individual people, they are high productivity growth. Um, if you think about the older established workers, the productivity is high, but it's not really growing anymore year to year. They're kind of, they're kind of like me, kind of plateaued, you know. And so... Then if we look at the housing system and make it completely unaffordable so that uh, you're living in Sydney and you need to travel two hours plus to get into the city centre if you're a young graduate, if that's actually displacing those people, making them have different yeah. choices, what you're doing is you're taking yeah. high productivity growth individuals, displacing them, you aggregate that up and you end up with a poorer productivity outcome for the economy overall. That's probably the, the easiest way mm -hmm. I, I could explain that that theory. It's an interesting one. I'm sort of mulling over it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's, it's you know, but prior to COVID, and this is why I think COVID's been a, a good thing, right? I mean, the remote work, if it, if it gives people the option to be, have a housing solution, because if you can't get a housing solution, um, you know, not just in the short term to rent, which is a difficult, but then also mm -hmm. to, to own and potentially have a family and et cetera, then you're going to consider other cities, you know, you're going to consider moving regionally, overseas, et cetera. So if a city doesn't give you that option, but I think COVID and remote work gives people the ability to live in those commuter cities and potentially, um, you know, travel in two or three days. So it's actually a viable solution to stay within a capital city, but not have to um, leave to a whole other new city or, or country. Do you think that's, that's why we should more encourage this remote work and um, you know, flexible work as a, as one of the I guess solutions to in keep increasing productivity. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting um, point, and you know, a lot of this work that we've done on productivity predates the pandemic. So you know, it, so we were looking at questions such as you know how long do people commute before it becomes unacceptable, and and they start making yeah. different choices, uh, and so it impacts on productivity. Yeah. So the flexible working thing, I mean, could be an antidote to to some of. The, to some of those problems. So if people are able to live a bit more remotely, but still uh, work flexibly, and then commute in a couple of days a week, um, then that, that could be a, a partial solution um, to that. So you mentioned earlier about um, that potentially the overall decline in productivity over the last 10, 15 years, but possibly is as a consequence of the housing 
market or the way the housing markets have been operating. And it's interesting because wages haven't been rising for that period of time that's been blamed on, on, you know, lack of productivity. So I guess is what you're saying that that is because prices have been rising to a point where those sort of most, the, the productivity growth segment of the employed people are moving further and further away from those employment options and then their productivity is reduced because the amount of time they're spending tr- in the commute or are there other things underpinning this because the proper we've talked about this on this podcast many many times about the property industry you know the our, our share market is dominated by the banks and the banks obviously one of their big big businesses is to sell money to people buying homes and building homes and um and then you've got obviously a lot of stimulus to stimulate first home buyers to get into the property market to buy those new properties and investors for that matter in the way negative gearing works etc etc so a lot of this and some economists we've had on this program have railed against that saying it's it's completely inefficient for you know the economy as a whole to put so much emphasis and attention onto the property market um, and then other economists are saying, well, it's too big to fail. It's going to get propped up at every corner because basically, you know, we've built an entire country on this. Is, is, are those sort of aspects part of what you mean when you say that potentially that the impact yeah. on productivity because of the housing market you know, or potentially the housing market has contributed to the decline in productivity? Is it pulling all those sort of factors as well in yeah, your no, mind? I, I think so. I mean, there's so many different factors there. But, I mean, one of them mm. is that is the idea that we're displacing people because cities are very expensive and, um, you know, it's not actually it's not good travelling for two hours each way every day. Yeah, um, not. it's not good for your mental well-being, but it's also expensive, you know, so, uh, mm. and, you know, by definition, money spent on housing costs, which are very high, can't be spent on anything else. So, so there's another mm. channel into the economy. Um, so consumer goods, you know, consumption, general wider consumption is impacted by high housing costs. You can only spend your money once, right? So if you're spending all on mm. high rents or high mortgage, then people are going to be skimping on other things. Uh, but equally, if they're spending yeah. on on transportation costs, then it can be going on to goods and services. So th- there's a knock-on impact yeah. to uh, to the economy. You said that modelling where the need for housing is going to be is always difficult. Obviously, made more so difficult because post lockdowns, we've got this shift in, in um, population, and we don't really know where everyone's going to land, or permanently, or or for a longer term. And then, and then you've also got the problem of, of developers. It, we're really at the mercy of whether developers choose to develop and, ha- and when they choose to develop the, the land that they've got. We haven't talked about public housing or social housing. Um, you know, really, I guess, how do moving forward, do we look at this idea of, well, how to predict where housing needs to be and who's responsible for actually building it? I think the, the, one of the most important things to um to, to, I think to understand about land supply and the way developers work, in my view, is the different timescales involved when we're looking at the private and public sectors. You know, so mm. um, so thinking about so when planning policies um, <clears throat> come in or they change, or we want to look at inclusionary zoning or mandatory zoning, for example, the, the government's uh, or the politicians' time frame is usually three, two, three, four years. It's all going to be done in two, three, four years' time. But um, any um, sort of state-led intervention that sees an opportunity is way too late, to be honest, because the market uh, <laughs> it sees the opportunity 20, 25, 30 years in advance. And, and mm. it has to, for developers to survive, they've got to be that good at spotting opportunity. So 
By the time yeah. the planning system comes along and says, look, here's a site, let's have an affordable housing component um, as part of the, of, the, of the development agreement. Um, well, uh, you know, a developer probably took an option on that site 25 years ago. And so they sorted out the financials involved 25 years ago. So I've, I've done lots of work on this, uh, in mainly in the UK, but some in also with Australian developers. But in the UK experience, where they have actually made affordable housing policies work quite well, part of the answer was do it well in advance. So developers can actually cope with pretty much anything, any terms of um, intervention and regulation, as long as they know what it is. So everyone's got a, a, mm. a level playing field, everyone's competing equally, and they need to know way, way in advance so, you know, in the early 2000s, I interviewed developers uh, who were throwing up their hands in horror at the idea of an affordable housing um, requirement, saying that development will cease altogether. Um, and then just before the pandemic hit, I interviewed some of the same people, very same people who were saying, actually, the system works pretty well. Um, it took quite a few years for it to feed through um, so that we could put the costs back on the landowner. But we all, all developers have got the same system. All the landowners know it now. Their expectations have been reduced. Um, so I think that's the, the important thing. It's the transparency and also planning it well in advance. There's no point in trying to parachute uh, a policy in, you know, two, you know, two years before a site's developed. Mm. It's going to be thought through decades in advance. And that, that might mean actually looking at our cities now and thinking, you know, where are people going to be living 25 years from now? And let's source out a policy yeah. framework now rather than waiting um, until the last minute. I mean, you've seen a major change in governments uh, this year. Do you think that, you know, we're just going to see this seesaw effect where, you know, everyone's thinking short term, right? What's going to be going to get me through the next election rather than what's going to, what do we need in 25 years? That type of long term thinking doesn't seem that common here. I think we're just dealing with different factions, you know, and, you know, so politicians, you know, are notoriously. Um, uh, Myopic, but they have to be, you know, because they're they're living in a sort of cutthroat uh, environment where yeah. things can change in a week. Uh, and you know, the Elephant Report, um, uh, which was published eighteen months ago, which got this conversation started. In that, we concluded by saying what's needed actually is a royal commission to to fix Australia's housing affordability crisis, because it's something that can't be done through politics. Um, you know, oh, all okay. of the taxation reforms are too politically toxic. Um, governments are working on three, four-year uh, horizons. horizons. Yes, thank <laughs> yeah. you. Um, mm. We kind of need to fix this over a 25 or 30-year period. Look, we even name a day and say, yeah, like, okay. 20 years from now, 20 years from now, we're going to abolish negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions. Name the date, and then the market will slowly, slowly adjust. Nobody will lose. You know, A similar approach yeah. was used, actually, in the early 1980s in the UK when mortgage interest tax mm. relief was uh, abolished. I mean, people then, um, I'm old enough to remember this, so people then thought that would be politically toxic, but because a date was named way in advance and it's phased out really slowly, yeah, no one right. got really, no one got stung and, and, and it took away yeah. a really unhelpful subsidy that was part of the problem. So we just don't have visionaries in our government. I mean, you know, we haven't had vision, I don't think we've had visionaries in this country for decades, really. Um, the last time we had any major reform was the 80s, wasn't it, with the Hawke and Keating and, and even Fraser did some some stuff in, with migrants and all the rest of it. But we, we really haven't had a lot of that future thinking. And in, interestingly enough, I mean, there was the Festival of Dangerous Ideas here in Sydney last weekend and I didn't go to this talk but I wish I had. Jackie Lambie gave a talk 
and and she was putting it out there that basically we should just you know throw out all the major parties and vote vote for your <laughs> for your your teal esque independent or a Lambie esque independent because the political um, well as I said it wasn't at the talk and I read the article in the Herald afterwards but you know the, the idea being that that having to follow party politics is not resulting in anything so I mean I'm not sure that that would necessarily result in anything either but I mean obviously our system's a bit broken when we're not actually properly planning for the future and I I hazard too that rental crisis that we're having at the moment um, you talked about you know the I guess COVID really setting it off but I think it had been the, the the foundations for it happening had been set in place even before then in terms of how the investors were disincentivized to get in, you know, get involved in the property market from say 2016 on for other reasons. And you can sort of understand that they were participating far too exuberantly and, and, and something needed to be done. But of course there's been a period of time and even probably before that, when investors have been discouraged from getting into the property market. So it's, there's, there's long-term impacts that take some time to actually manifest are you seeing other things like that that you're thinking? Well, the, the seeds of these these changes or the seeds of the problems that we have today have actually been it really sown a long time I ago. Think that's, yeah. Or they have, or they're weeds that haven't been plucked out a long time. I think time yeah, ago. it's a really good point. I mean, so the housing crisis hasn't just come overnight, but it's but it's developed slowly and surely over I don't know, like half a century, I suppose, really. Mm. Um, mm. And so we're working within a political system where things have got to be done in a year or two. Um, and it just can't be fixed in that time yeah. period. It's just as simple yeah. as that. Um, so it, it doesn't doesn't really suit a political fix. You know, so the political ideas are, you know, let's give people ten grand subsidy, or yeah. you know, or say, or yeah. say that we're going to abolish the planning yeah. system, which can't be done. You know, uh, I mean, there's, there's really mm. important aspects of what the planning system deliver that we wouldn't want to live without. You know, um, that affect our everyday lives. You know, open space, amenity lands reserves you know um yeah things like that well-planned streets uh having neighborhood shopping centers all of that stuff you wouldn't want to to do without it so the idea that it, it mm. you know you could fix it but just by tinkering with these things um it's not credible um and then any sort of um proposed tax uh, regime changes are also seen as you know pretty politically toxic uh, to the extent that you know, no one's really su- suggesting them anymore. Any any reform mm. of, of the taxation system. Yeah, uh, I think that's probably the yeah. You know, it's one of the best ideas I've heard actually around the royal commission and and setting a long forward date and and not trying to solve things in an election mm. or with this policy or you know throw this band aid on here and win votes etc. Because um, yeah, that's the stuff Veronica and I just want to scream at. Right, like you're missing the bigger picture. And <laughs> but I think if you you know you do want to change, um, I don't know tax on you know home ownership for example you know that's that could you know slow down a lot of growth in the property market you know encourage a lot of speculation but you're not going to do it overnight but if you said look you know from 2030 onwards you know you are going to have to pay tax on you know growth in your home or you know in the pension tests you know your home's going to be counted there's all these big changes that potentially could you know create a fairer system but you know you're not going to win votes i mean the short term but if a royal commission highlighted that i mean what what's your thoughts on this sort of um, short snapping increases in interest rates, um, you know, the debt servicing costs, you know, the, the interest, their mortgage repayments is going to, going to go up dramatically um, across our whole housing system. I mean, how do you think that's going to impact into our productivity and then ultimately our economy? I mean, do you think this is quite sustainable to keep high rates 
at a, you know, for the next two or three years, you know, when do you, you know, have you done much work around sort of looking at what the RBA rates and holding them, you know, how sustainable it is to hold them at, you know, three, four percent? Oh, like it's a great question, a, a really interesting one. <laughs> um, you know, th- this is a sort of perennial problem, um, and at different central banks all around the world have different stances, um, and, but no one's really figured out what the perfect solution is about should, mm. how seriously do you take what's going on in the housing market when you're um, governing your monetary policy, all right? So I think the RBA is in a bit of a lonely position because, you know, the Bank for International Settlements, the IMF, the OECD, the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, they're all on record very recently as saying that they're concerned about what's going on in the housing system, that the volatility of the housing market is actually an economic and a financial risk and it should be taken more seriously by central bank decision-making. Um, I mean, the RBA is sticking to its uh, guns. I mean, it doesn't have a remit to look at what's going on in the housing system, control house prices, and it's not doing it. And, you know, but it works both ways. So when the market was booming, but the economy was still sluggish 18 months ago, um, the RBA wasn't motivated to do anything about interest rates to, to control the housing market boom, right? So. But equally now, they're not motivated to do anything with interest rates to, to take away the risk of creating, uh, you know, repossessions or negative equity. Um, and I do remember very clearly 12 months ago looking at housing market commentary on a daily basis and thinking, oh, you know, this is turning into a disaster. There's all these people chasing properties. They're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars more than they're actually worth, more than they value that. Uh, there's this frenzy of activity. Um, they're locking themselves into um, incredibly low interest rates, which will only last a couple of years. It's, it's going to end in tears. Um, so I hope it doesn't yeah. happen, but I, I do worry a lot about the recent entrance to the market and uh, and what's, what, what the future holds in store for them. I think, though, if you, and I agree with you, but in the whole scheme of things, if you've got, what, 10 million properties in this country, that might be, that might apply to perhaps 10% of that. So in terms of its overall impact, the thing that sort of occurred to me this morning, and maybe it's a really silly question and, and maybe you can or can't answer it, but the RBA controls the interest rates and, and it's supposed, they don't have a mandate for the property market so it's not in their, you know, they're not particularly interested or, or that's not what they're worried about. So interest rates are supposed to slow the economy down and or slow inflation or lower inflation. But if roughly 20% of the total value of property in this country is mortgage, you know, so that's 80% of the value of the property in, properties of this country is unencumbered, then it's only a really small percentage of Australians that are bearing the brunt of our, or actually, you know, having the the I guess, the um, imposition of trying to lower inflation? Or am I missing something? Um, I don't know. It's like I've thought a lot about that very same question um, recently because there's there's a lot of discussion in, in like the financial news about this, um, and it, which almost seems to suggest that um, the purpose of having higher interest rates is to take money away from uh, mortgage holders to to control inflation, mm. <laughs> but actually, that's that's not the target at all. Uh, the idea is to, to lower the money supply generally in the economy, um, and so that wider and that, that means non-housing consumption. So that non-housing consumption starts falling back, and 
and begins to rein back inflation. So homeowners are not the target. They're actually the um, they're the sort of innocent bystanders. But yet, you know, in terms of it's a big stick, and that's going to be the the segment of the market, yeah. you know, all the, the spending market that's going to be most impacted. Absolutely, right? and because there there is a very large proportion of homeowners in Australia who do not have any outstanding mortgage commitments. So, so of mm. course, they're completely unaffected um, by by those interest rates, and. Um, I suppose it does disproportionately put the pain onto those recent entrants mm. who have got very substantial mortgages and borrowed at very low interest rate yeah. levels. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, you're right. Like short-term credit, you're still going to take out a car loan. You're still going to take out a personal loan. You can still get credit cards really easily, right? Um, so higher interest rates isn't probably going to slow down that consumer demand. If not, if there is a bit of a uh, tougher times with it, you know, it's not easy to, you know, low, low unemployment, so you can get all those loans pretty easily, right? Yeah. Um, and banks are pretty free lending on all that. They're all trying to grow that credit card debt and consumer debt. Yeah. So, um, and if anything, people who've got low mortgages are getting more money on their money in um, term deposits, um, yeah. etc., and their cash in there. So, yeah, do, do you think that, you know, maybe higher interest rates isn't going to slow down the inflation problem? As much as they'd like, or what's, what's your thought of that? Uh, look, so I'm not, you know, I'm not a macroeconomist, so I'm not really qualified to, to answer um, that directly. <laughs> but but I do think that um, what's interesting is that the kind of inflation that we're seeing uh, is different in in different countries, right? So, um, so for example, in Europe, inflation seems to be principally driven by um, uh, food and energy prices, you know, of course, and of course the energy. Uh, Situations linked to what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Um, I think only in uh, really the US is, is there really strong evidence that, that consumer spending completely went out, out of control during the uh, pandemic uh, recovery period. I mean, so we see, saw really strange things happening, like um, the price of secondhand cars was higher than the price of new cars. You know, you know, the sort of same, wow. the same model. Um, so a one-year-old model would be more expensive than a brand new one. Why? Be- Is that because yeah. they're actually paying for immediate access yeah, exactly. to something? They'd have to wait for yeah. the new one. Yeah. yeah. So you've got to wait 12 or 18 months to actually get take delivery of a new car. So you pay a certain price, yeah. but people want it now. So, so they're paying more for something which is older or not as good. I mean, that sort of thing mm. is a bit irrational looking and it's, it's a bit of a warning sign that actually the consumer demand is just too hot. Um, mm. I, I don't think we're seeing quite the same thing in Australia, um, but we're not seeing the cost push stuff that uh, that uh, that we're seeing in in UK. But there's no doubt there's there's a significant chunk of our inflation is cost push, um, and monetary policy doesn't do much to, to rein that in. You know, so if if it's higher mm. material costs and and it's higher prices abroad, yeah. we're enforcing that inflation. Uh, like domestic monetary policy is not going to not going to do a lot to tackle that. Yeah, interesting. In out of curiosity, in Europe, you know, what's look? We, as I said, I just quoted some really rough figures earlier. We've got roughly ten million properties in Australia. It's it's not quite worth ten trillion dollars, but just round it up a little bit, and roughly round it down slightly is two trillion dollars worth of borrowing on on those properties, right? What's what are the um, corresponding figures in the bulk of Europe, for instance? It varies. Or in America, do you know them off the no, top of your head? I don't know them off the top of my head. And also, it, it, oh, I just thought you'd just be a plucked in. It out varies of the air. a lot as well. I mean, so in Europe, um, each country is quite different. So, like Germany, for example, has got a really huge and very well organised rental sector. Um, and home ownership isn't mm. seen yeah. as particularly important um, to people. But yeah. 
so I can only give a sense, but I, I, my, you know, my sense is that Australia's housing stock is is, is worth an astronomical amount of money, um, and you know, and the gap between what it's worth and the outstanding debt has has increased a lot over the last say five years. Mm. Yeah. So Chris, have you got a uh, property Dumbo for us? It's not really anything about an individual person or situation, but I suppose yeah. I'm now um, old enough to have seen a few cycles. Um, and it's about a pattern, really, a pattern that um, I keep seeing, which is if you think about you know, the anatomy of housing market boom um, and also the timing by which people enter the market, I keep seeing the same pattern play out, right? which is that at the beginning of the boom, people who are quite wealthy are trading up, they're entering the market, and then right at the very end, it's, that's when the marginal homeowners enter the market. It's when people borrow far too much money that they can't afford and they enter when the growth prospects have gone and they enter last. So they're the least um, you know, capable of, of absorbing losses, um, but they're the ones who, who, who bear the brunt of it when interest rates go up and the market, t the market turns down. So I think that's a real pity and something which um, accelerates and exacerbates wealth inequality. Um, I guess yeah. it's really an argument for, you know, as well as doing something about the, the housing affordability crisis, we maybe need to do something about um, financial education as, as well. Um, and the importance yeah. of not getting sucked into, um, you know, hysterical FOMO. market trends, <laughs> like, yeah, like the FOMO behavior that we saw at the end of last year. Yeah, I mean, that's very, uh, lots of evidence around that with, with shares um, mm. and, you know, people taking out margin loans and, you know, after the market goes up a certain uh, percentage, then a lot of the smaller money comes into the market and then the market crashes and then the the, uh, the wealthy come and buy up when the market's depressed and it just creates this greater inequality. And, um, yeah, it's very easy to track that stuff in the stock market, but I absolutely agree. It's uh, the FOMO of just getting in. If you, you know, if you miss out now, you're never going to buy something and, the parents perpetuate that, you know, grandparents yeah. perpetuate that, um, and then they force their kids into it. Um, we, I was very vocal around this in 2016, 2017, to be honest, around um, I was just seeing it because, you know, there was four or five years into a, a property boom um, and clients out, you know, young couples are coming to us and they're so anxious and scared and the parents say, just get anything, just get this mm. apartment. And we're just like, well, no, don't. Like, you're not understanding, you know, and... Um, yeah, I think that's that's a big part of it. It's a, it's a, it's a real big problem out there where, um, yeah, the people who come late to the party are the ones who bear all the brunt. I think that's right? it. I think, that, I mean, I think uh, as, a, as a moral, it would be you know, when something looks too good to be true, it probably is. And I know if it looks like you just get on getting bored, it's probably already too late as well, you know, in terms of um, yeah. bubbles. Yeah, I think the opposite to that is that they've got to be a bit more um, – opportunistic though when things aren't great and this is the problem is when you haven't got a lot you don't want to lose it so you you, you feel like you're losing because you're not in the market but then when there's you know times like now for example i think that you know they, that's they need to be prioritizing it a bit more right they sit on their hands a little bit and I, like you say there's cycles yeah we're going through a bit of a correction of some sort but now's the time when they should be really trying to you know build their deposit and, and try to get into the market obviously doing it smartly but um, I think they're not going to take any action until they start to see prices go up. And the FOMO yeah. is what causes them to come into yeah. the market again years down the line. Um, you can already see that, you know, talking to our pre-approvals and clients and oh, I just want to see what happens. I just want to sit on my hands. And um, well, no, actually now's your window, right? Now's your window. You've got less competition. You can be patient. You can potentially, 
you know, high high chance of getting a quality asset. And I think that's that's the. I think that's right. I think what you know, the, the prices will will probably correct. You know, but then there'll, there'll come a moment when interest rate outlook is going the other way. That actually, that that, that for a yeah. few mm. years ahead of us, um, it'll be looking like they're coming down, and um, and so that's when when people could look at entering the market and and, and get a, a you know, create an opportunity. I guess what I would say, a couple of things there. One is that the problem is with the buyer's market, as we are now in, is that vendors of quality property, tend to, they tend to sit on their hands as well. So it is actually harder to find a quality yeah, asset in a, in a flat yeah. market. But when you do find one, you know, go for mm. it. But the problem is that buyers sit on their hands and they're sitting on their hands waiting for the market to do something. Whereas I say, don't sit on your hands waiting for the market. Sit on your hands waiting for a bloody good property because yeah. they're the hard things to find. And yeah. and yet everyone sort of gets their head wrapped around all the wrong metrics and it's just it's just yeah. human nature, you know. That's <laughs> a really good point, actually, Veronica. I, mean, I actually wrote um, a conversation article about this a uh, couple of years ago and it was about, you know, the, the bar, sorry, the... Um, the home seller's secret weapon is they don't they don't actually have to sell, you know. So um, mm. the people can defer selling the property for years, uh, and so when the market's weak, yeah. they just withdraw. Yep. Yeah. Yes, and the stuff that's the most vulnerable, you know, apart from the fact that, that anyone who entered the market sort of at the peak and overpaid and if they were already stretched financially and they really borrowed to their maximum and then interest rates start rising and prices start falling, they're all at risk, but they're even more so at risk if they bought a dud asset and then it's the wrong asset and then they're forced to sell it within a yeah. short period of time. And and it happens. It does. And, in yeah. fact, literally I've actually just started tracking properties that have on being on sold now after being bought last year yeah. in our neck of the woods, so in the inner west of Sydney and in uh, some of the eastern suburbs as well. So far, not one of them has lost nominal, um, nominally anyway. They, they would have lost potentially on purchasing and exiting costs and also holding costs. But in terms of sale price, not one of them has actually sold for less yet. But then, you know, there is a – and there's there's some variance too. Some have only just scraped through, but um, and some have shown quite a significant gain. So, really? That's quite interesting, uh, actually, know, yeah. It is interesting, actually, because, I mean, I do quite a lot of case study work to compare how different properties over exactly the same period of time, the same suburb, how, how, what the growth rates have been, um, the different growth rates, and then compare that to the median. Obviously, with the median, I've got to sort of deduct out, you know, an, out, some sort of amount for improvements, yeah. you know. But the properties, and I've got a bit of a theory on this, that the properties that transact over shorter periods of time tend to be the lower-grade properties, Um and the ones that actually are held longer tend to be the better properties. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sort of working on the theory, but so far it's playing out that way. That's interesting. So, yeah. There is a, I mean, so I've done a bit of work on like repeat sales modeling, um, which is a, a method mm. that you can use to uh, create market indexes. Um, but there's a lot of yeah. literature there, mainly US stuff actually, which which does back up your theory um, that the short hold properties mm. tend to be lemons. You know, they, they fail to meet the buyer's expectation. That's why they're coming back onto the market. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. the reason that's important for modeling is, is because it distorts the analysis. So you've got to be able to find them and take them out. Yes. Yeah. And this is a problem. They're actually drawing down median prices as well. You know, so, so you've got... Things increasing median, such as you know your renovations, and you've got you've got these rapid transactions of crap properties, and and the disproportionate amount of crap properties that are being sold versus good properties, and that sort of throws everything out too. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, there's all, all can, that stuff that's going on late last year. There were there were there were stories on the ABC about this too. That people were buying anything without even having an inspection oh, done. 
um, because they were su- yeah. in such a panic for that FOMO thing. Yeah. Well, there's this, this false belief in this country that property always goes up. And you see these aggregated graphs that show that it always goes up. And it's like, yeah, I can't lose. Well, actually, yes, you can. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I shouldn't laugh, but you can. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much for the chat today, Chris. There was, I enjoyed um, it. Plenty of good insights there. And I think the Royal Commission idea is, uh, is bang on, to be honest. I think that's we need to be focused on the long term, not trying to get these short oh, fixes. So I appreciate you coming on today. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.